Turn with your Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 3. I'll be reading the first 10 verses of uh, 1 John chapter 3. And as we read, let's remember this is the Word of God. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we'll see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, no one who sins has seen him or knows him, little children. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God has appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. That is God's word. Father, thank you so much for this part of your holy, inspired, and errant word. We love it. We know that it is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our way. We know that it is the bread of life. We pray this morning that you would use it in its many ways to illumine us, to guide us, to feed us. I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see the truth of your word today, our ears to hear its message, our hearts to apply it, that we might be changed by it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question I've been asking through this Christmas season is what difference does Christmas make? Maybe a better way to ask it would be, does Christmas make a difference? After all you've been through over the past several weeks, in whatever way you or your family have observed or celebrated Christmas, has it made any difference? in your life to change you in any way my point is that it should why observe Christmas if you're only going to do so in a detached or aloof kind of way why celebrate Christmas as though you were kind of a spectator at a play observing and being entertained but not really impacted or affected by what you see 
and by what you hear. You see, I'm convinced that observing Christmas, celebrating the birth of Christ, should make a difference. It should make you different. It should make me different. It should make us different. Well, what does that mean? I've been trying to point that out along the way during this month in my sermon two weeks ago from Philippians 2. The point was that observing Christmas should show us more of the unselfish behavior of Jesus, more of the humble attitude of Jesus, more of the sacrificial spirit of Jesus. And so, celebrating the birth of Christ ought to make us more unselfish, more humble, and more sacrificial. Last week, when Matthew 2, when we looked at the Magi, the wise men, the point was that we ought to appreciate more fully the wonder of the grace of God. We ought to have this sense of expectation, of finding or seeing Jesus obvious in our lives. That we should demonstrate real faith, even when there's very little in which to exercise faith. And we ought to be led to worship with reverence and awe when we find the Lord Jesus and see Him real in our hearts and lives. Well, that brings us to this morning. Now, this text is not a traditional Christmas text. You might be wondering, what am I doing two days after Christmas, turning to 1 John chapter 3? I want to focus first upon one phrase in this text, which I think has a very significant reason to help us understand the meaning of Christmas. Just two things this morning. I want you to see first that uh, the purpose of Christ is stated in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. Where it says this, For you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. Now it's clear John there is reminding his readers of something they already knew, but something of which they needed to be reminded again and again. He notice, notice he says, you know, you know this to be true, but even though you know it, I'm going to say it again. You know that he appeared, Christ appeared in order to take away sins. If you want a summary statement of the purpose for the birth of Christ, that's it. Christ appeared to take away sins. You see, the birth of Christ, with all the trappings we put around it, the angels and halos and shepherds and animals and all the rest. In reality, the birth of Christ has to do with the reality of sin. Jesus was born because of sin, and he was born to deal with sin. If there was no sin, there would be no need for Jesus. But because sin is a reality, and because sin has such devastating effects upon us and upon our relationship with God and our relationships with each other, the birth of Christ was a fundamental necessity. 
You know, as the time drew near for Jesus to begin his, his public ministry, John the Baptist appeared on the scene. John the Baptist was a forerunner of the Messiah. He, he was the one called and sent by God to prepare the people uh, to receive Jesus and to receive Jesus' ministry of preaching and of teaching and of healing. Remember what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that the same thing the Apostle John is saying in our text? He appeared in order to take away sin. Now, John the Baptist used the singular. Behold the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. The Apostle John in our text uses the plural. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. The meaning is the same. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to deal with the problem of sin. He came to deal with your sin problem and he came to deal with my sin problem. What difference should Christmas make? It ought to help us deal more effectively with our problem with sin. No, Jesus deals with, with sin in a, in a general way, in a specific way. You know, Jesus came into a world that was tarnished and tainted by sin, didn't he? As our text says, Jesus had no sin in himself, but Jesus came into a world that was darkened by the presence of sin. You know, there's a hymn by Philip Bliss that says this, The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin, but the light of the world is Jesus. See, Jesus came from the glories and the splendors of heaven into, into a world that was darkened by the reality of sin. And so Jesus came to be the light. It's the general way that he deals with sin. Jesus came to be the light in a dark and sinful world. But he also deals with sin in a specific way. And I think that's what John is getting at in our text. You see, Jesus didn't come just to deal with sin in general. Jesus came to deal with sin in particular. With your sin. And with my sin. Or as John says, he appeared to take away sins. I think it's a lot more personal to me and a lot more practical. It's one thing to talk about sin in general. It's another thing to talk about my sin in particular. And you see, Jesus didn't come just to deal with sin. He came to deal with sins. Specific, real sins. And then the point the Bible makes is Jesus came to take your, not just your sin, but your sin upon himself. And I don't know about you. I'm kind of embarrassed that Jesus had to take some of my sins upon himself. But see, the positive side is that 
Jesus deals with every sin you've ever committed, with every sin you will ever commit. Jesus came to take away your sins. That means that when you say something you shouldn't have said, when you do something you shouldn't have done, when you procrastinate, when you are selfish, when you're jealous, when you're impatient, when you're filled with pride or lust or anger, when you experience strife or a broken relationship with another person, when you repeat gossip, when you slander someone, when you're unwilling to forgive another person. You see, those are all specific sins, aren't they? No matter what sins you've committed, Lord Jesus came to take those sins away. And I would submit to you this morning that unless you are specific in dealing with your sins, unless you name names, that is, the name, the names of your sin, if you're just dealing with sin in general, oh God, help me with my problem with sin, forgive me of my sin, and you're not dealing with sins in particular, confessing specific sins that you've committed, you'll never get to the place where you want to be in your relationship with Christ. And you know, it's just human nature. It's a lot easier to deal with somebody else's sin, sins, than it is your own. Isn't that true? Boy, it's a lot easier for me to point out my wife's sins is to deal with my own. But you see, that's what Christ came to do. He came to take away our sins in particular. It reminds me of the events that took place on the Day of Atonement in the, in the Old Testament. Remember this account of the Day of Atonement, what happened on the Day of Atonement? On the Day of Atonement, the the, the priest would have two goats. And one of those goats was slain as a sacrifice. And the blood of that goat, some of it was sprinkled on the altar and some of it was sprinkled on the people. But, you know, the, the sacrifice of that goat and the shedding of that blood was to remind the people that it was only through the shedding of blood their sins could be forgiven. And that God promised a Redeemer to come someday who would shed his blood for the sins of his people. But there was another goat. It's called the scapegoat. And the priest would take that goat and he would lay his hands on the head of that goat and then he would confess the sins of the people over that goat. And you see, he was symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto that animal. And then he would lead that goat out in the most desolate place in the wilderness and leave it there. To symbolize that, that God carries our sins far away. That he remembers them no more. He separates us from them as far as the east is from the west. The remarkable thing is, Jesus, I say this reverently, Jesus is both of those goats. He is the sacrifice who shed his blood 
to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he is the scapegoat who, as the text says, takes our sin, our sins away. I don't know about you, but that's that's a mighty good news. That's a mighty good news. The Lord Jesus Christ came to take away my sins. To deal not just with my sin problem, but to deal with my sins. There's a second thing I want you to see from this text. And that's some of the implications of what it means to have that done in your life. To know that Christ has taken your sins away and you've trusted in that by faith and you're in a relationship with Him. What implication does that have to your life? I think we find several in our text. One is that it is by what Christ did in taking our sins away that we become the children of God. Look at verses 1 and 2. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called or would be called children of God. For such we are. And then verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. Now, Christmas is all about the Son of God, isn't it? We celebrate the birth of the only begotten Son of God at Christmas. But the wonder of Christ being born to Mary is that through His life and through His death and through His resurrection and through His ascension, He enables us to be the sons and daughters of God by adoption. The Lord Jesus is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, but you and I are the sons and daughters of God by adoption. Through the work of Christ, He adopts us into His family. He allows us to know Him as our Heavenly Father. And He treats us as His children. What a rich blessing to find in the text. Because Christ has taken away our sins, and because God has loved us with such great love, we're we're called the children of God. You are His child. If you are... A Christian this morning, if you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, you are a child of God. And you can come to Him as your Heavenly Father and know that He longs for you to come. That you're His heir. And you are the recipient of all the spiritual blessings that He has in store for His children. Now we are the children of God because of what Christ has done for us. The second implication is through the birth of Christ and the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, verse 2, we shall be like Him. Verse 2, Behold, beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when He appears... We'll be like Him. Let that sink in for just a moment. When He appears, 
we'll be like him. Don't you see that's the great hope of the believer? One day, not just to be with Jesus, but to be like Jesus. Sometimes we lose sight of, of what the Christian life is all about. I would tell you this morning that the, the ultimate goal of a Christian is to become more like Jesus. And, and the, the greatest desire of your heart on one day to be like Him. Now, the text says that when He appears, we'll be like Him. That is when Christ comes again, He's going to make all things new, including you and me. And we'll be like Him. But the Bible says that the Christian life is a process of becoming more like Jesus. More like Christ. You know, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed into what? You know, the Bible tells us, transformed more and more into the very image and likeness of Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, you know, we Presbyterians just love Romans 8. Talks about God choosing us before the foundation of the world and giving us salvation. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Got to read the rest. To become conformed the image of his son. Why does God call us to himself? Why does he give us new life? It's so that we might be conformed to the image of his son. You put Romans 8 and Romans 12 together and it says don't be conformed to this world. You be conformed to the image of Christ. Be transformed, changed into something else. And there's a, a third implication also. And that is that we would become more pure. You see, becoming like Jesus, again, is not just a future hope. is isn't just something we look forward to taking place when Jesus appears, but it's something that ought to be taking place in our lives right now. How does John put it? Verse 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. You see, the hope of being conformed to the image of Christ completely someday makes me want to be conformed more and more to His image today. And if you don't have that desire in your heart to be more and more like Christ, then you've got to wonder if indeed you really understand what Christmas is all about. What the birth of Christ really means what the death of Christ has accomplished for you on the cross. You know, John goes on to say some rather hard things toward the end of the passage that I read this morning. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, he's talking about a life of sin, a lifestyle of sin. 
You know, back in the day, we used to hear a good bit about the carnal Christian, someone who professed faith, but who was living carnally, who had no reflection in their life of Christ was real. Well, that's not a carnal Christian. That's not a Christian. Someone whose life is driven by sin is not a believer. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, verse 7, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous, and all the rest. And then verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. You see, one of the implications of the birth of Christ and celebrating Christmas and all that the, the Christ came to do is that it, it makes us more pure. As a purifying, cleansing, sanctifying effect upon us. You see, we aren't just to be spectators at the play. We've got a manger scene we set up on our coffee table every year. And it's great to look at the manger scene, but I'm afraid sometimes that's just the way we deal with Christmas. We just kind of look at it. We observe it. We go through the motions of it. We don't allow it to impact us and change us. I know this is a little bit of a different Christmas sermon, but that don't because I want this to be a different Christmas. And as it concludes, I want it to be Christmas that made a difference in your life, my life, in our life. It'll be more like Jesus. Father, thank you so much for your word so true, so real, so powerful, so precious. We love it. We want to be fed by it, and I pray that you would take what we've heard and seen this morning and use it as the sword of the Spirit in our lives to cut us under, to show us our need, our greater need for Christ. And give us a deeper love for Him, make us more like Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.